0: Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel to talk tradition and family. Whale Rider, Wajda, and Pieces of April.
1: tradition and
0: family wow (laughs) the ties that bind our lives
1: (laughs) this is a very appropriately timed episode because thanksgiving was last week and we're about to head into the holiday season of christmas and hanukkah and kwanzaa and new year's eve this time of year in america is defined by the traditions and rituals that we have with our family Tradition and family, to me, have always been inextricably linked. We give ourselves this illusion of purpose and structure within our culture, within our tribe, based on the traditions that we pass down from one generation to the other. It's sort of this idea that there's power in numbers, that if we've been doing these rituals for hundreds of years, then they must be important. And so it's always been the family's responsibility to pass down these rituals, that within nuclear families and extended families you teach younger generations what these rituals are and then they passed on to their children. I sort of came up with this theory while watching these three movies that respecting tradition is really about just wanting your parents approval, and that's a very clever way of cultures maintaining tradition is by using younger people's desperate attempt to make their parents proud to maintain tradition. So many different kinds of traditions are explored in this episode between these three movies: food, dance, oral reciting, religion, holidays, music, and then the biggest trad- which is rules you know like laws Mm
0: -hmm. and then of course the long human traditions of racism Mm. sexism those are two massive themes in these movies as well
1: yeah i also love that by including all three of these movies together there's no ultimate statement about whether or not tradition is a good thing it's just something to be explored
0: Setting is really important to all three of these movies. And I think that's directly because of the themes of tradition and family. Because you really can't divorce those themes from the place that they come from. Yeah. And because of that, all three movies were filmed in the actual locations where they are set. Mm. And I don't think that's a coincidence. So we're going to start with Whale Rider. Mm. Which takes place in Wangara, New Zealand, and was shot there. And it feels so important to the film because so much of it has to do with Pai's relationship with the whales in the ocean that are so close to her. Whale Rider is incredible. Every time I see it, it gets better.
1: I think Whale Rider is one of those sort of classic, quote unquote, feminist movies. You know, when I started telling people about the podcast, they were like, oh, when are you going to talk about Whale Rider? Like everybody loves thinking of Whale Rider as this like girl empowerment movie, which is great and it's true, but it's so much more than that. It's so
0: much more than that. Also, like when I was researching it online, I kept seeing it described as a family movie, which I guess it is, except that I think of family movies, I guess, as... You know, sappy, childish, not sophisticated in theme. This isn't any of those things.
1: It's about family.
0: Yeah. To me, this is a challenging movie for children, and I think that's fabulous. Mm. I don't think anyone can watch this movie and not think about their own relationship to their family and their own relationship to their traditions, Mm. especially children.
1: The main thing that struck me in this film is the relationship between the ancient and the modern. This film has this beautiful tug of war between ancient themes, ancient aesthetic, ancient sounds in a modern community. The juxtaposition of how those two worlds intertwine is so interesting. Mm. The movie starts very ethereally. Slow music. I feel like the camera is even moving in slow motion. There's this like wistful narration about this legend from centuries ago, and you don't feel like you're in a modern time. And then two seconds later, you cut to a very modern hospital where a woman is giving birth. And an entire family is surrounding her, and you're like, oh, I guess this is modern day. I sort of got the impression from the way it started that it wasn't, mm-hmm. and that confusion follows through the rest of the movie. You don't really know what world you're in because it's a modern set of characters living in terms of this ancient culture that they've inherited.
0: I also love the opening scene because the way that it interjects the story of Paikia and the origin story of our Paikia, yeah, by cutting between the beautiful shots of the whales and then the shots of her mother in labor pain. It's drawing that immediate connection between these two figures that they have a parallel hero myth. Mm. So, Whale Rider came out in 2002. It was written and directed by Nikki Caro and based on the novel Whale Rider by Witty Ihimira. It stars Keisha Castle-Hughes as Paikia and Rawiri Parateen as Koro.
1: I love that we're starting with this movie because it establishes what i think most traditions in most cultures are which is the legacy passed from one man to another man mm. like this whole movie is about the grandfather's disappointment and heartbreak that his tribe is not going to go in the direction that he thought it was going to go in because neither of his sons are going to become the chief that seems to be like the main internal conflict of the movie it's not really paikia's inner conflict she knows she wants to be chief like her objective is pretty simple It's the grandfather struggling with who to give his inheritance to considering there's no obvious male error. I think that's a great way to start this episode, because normally tradition gives space for male pride. Right. I'm just super into the fact that in the first half hour of this movie, there's this really devastating, beautiful scene between the grandfather and the father, arguing about the future of the tribe, considering the father wants to move to Germany, wants to marry a white woman, and have this sort of different life. That scene doesn't involve any women. Paikia and the grandmother are not invited to that conversation. I feel like that's the foundation of what tradition tends to be is this conflict between men And so I think this movie has this really beautiful evolution that by the end of it, it's really about Paikia. And the father is a pretty minor role. Mm -hmm. One of my other favorite scenes in this movie is when the grandfather and Paikia are trying to fix the motorboat. And he gives this beautiful romantic speech about the rope and their intertwining and how it makes them strong. And then they break and he's like, stupid rope, I'll get another one. And she fixes it. Like she takes these two ropes, she ties them together together. She uses her impromptu skills to improvise a new way to use these robes and he yells at her for it. He punishes her for it because it wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. I just think that scene is such a perfect metaphor. Maybe even a little too on the nose, but it's just so satisfying that that whole scene pretty much represents everything that the film is doing. He's romanticizing something to her that isn't working, that is sort of broken. She tries to fix it, and he punishes her for it, even though the way she did it got the motorboat to work.
0: There's so much gorgeous visual storytelling in this movie. Storytelling through metaphor. We meet Pi for the first time riding on her grandfather's lap yeah. on the bicycle. Later on in the movie, when she starts training in Taiha, the very next scene, we see her pedaling her own bicycle, Ugh. and she's racing this bus full of boys, Yeah, and she passes them. Yeah. She totally surpasses them on her own, engaging in an activity that is emulating her grandfather, mm. but doing it on her own.
1: Yeah, that's lovely.
0: There's so much gorgeous storytelling like that. Even the costuming, which is just so brilliant. Scene after scene, seeing her cover up these cute little floral dresses with a boy's t-shirt or a sports jersey. So much of the movie has to do with gender.
1: Another huge metaphorical moment in the movie is with the tooth, is with the whale's tooth. He throws down, none of the boys can get it. And I know that we're supposed to be very conflicted about this grandfather, but the look of heartbreak on his face when he sees that that whale's tooth is probably gone forever now, is really, really powerful. You know, in in his eyes, that's the end of his tribe. He just threw his tribe away down into the ocean. And no one will be able to reclaim it for him. Mm -hmm. It's really, really painful. And then for it to come full circle and for her to be the one to bring it back with a live lobster, no less. (laughs) She got another perk while she was down there. Yeah. Really good stuff.
0: It's brilliant. I felt so many things about Koro. Yeah. He's so interesting the way he is so committed to the rules. Yeah. And yet, he's such a good actor. The way that he hugs his son and the way that he looks at his granddaughter, there's so much conflict within him because mm. he has so much love for them. Yeah. It's in total conflict with his left brain that's telling him to follow the rules as he knows them. Mm. And to do what he needs to do to save his tribe. And I think in a lesser movie, he would be framed as the villain of the story. Yeah. And he's he's so not. Yeah. When he cries, it's heartbreaking. Yeah.
1: Do you think it's a left brain sort of need for order, need for following the rules? Or do you think that he genuinely has been raised to think that girls are not fit to lead this tribe? I think it's more that. I don't think he's following rules that are necessarily arbitrary to him. I think he thinks that the way that things have always been are the way that things should continue to be. It's what's kept their tribe alive and beautiful for hundreds of years. Yeah. Just a quick example of this is the joke that he tells all the boys in the school about if you mess up, your dick will fall off. That is such a gendered joke. And you can probably imagine that that joke has been around for a really long time. And there's no way to modify that joke to include Paikia. You just have to change it or get rid of it. And so there are examples like that. Everywhere in every culture, that well, these are the very specific anecdotes and rituals and jokes that we have that imply a certain kind of people have access to it. And if we include other people, then those rituals, those jokes, for instance, are gonna have to be taken away. And that's scary because the boys laughed, he had a moment with them. When he was their age, someone probably made that joke to him. And that was a moment that he had with his elder. And you're gonna have to break that tradition if you include someone like Paikia. I think he romanticizes these rules because it's like I was saying earlier. When you have power in numbers, when you have powers of hundreds of years behind you, you feel like there's validity to those choices. I think he thinks that there's real validity to excluding girls, because that's how it's been done for so long by the ancestors that he worships and loves and admires. He's so scared that if he allows Paikia to take over, that he will be responsible for the downfall of his tribe. And his arc is learning that not only will his tribe survive, but it will thrive with Paikia. Right. And that's why one of the final scenes when he's in the hospital and he says, forgive me, my leader. Ugh! I was just so overwhelmed with emotion when he said that. That he not only acknowledged that he was wrong, but that she was the fantastic leader that he'd been wanting to give his tribe to. I also find it very funny that the grandmother withheld the information that Paikia was the one who got it because the grandfather is so fragile. I'm sorry, we just don't talk about men in that context very often. This is a very sensitive, fragile man yeah. who feels very nervous about his masculinity, about his authority. She needed to like spare him the emotional embarrassment that Paikia was the one who got the tooth back. Let's just like, let's just like call men for what they are sometimes which is as fragile as they all claim women to be
0: do you think that's what that moment was though my impression was that she was punishing him
1: and wanted to wait until it would really sting
0: she wanted him to suffer a little longer oh (laughs)
1: Um, both are great interpretations that's awesome
0: i'm obsessed with the grandmother yeah I think, you know, right off the bat, from the very first scene, she's holding the baby and she says, just say the word and I'll divorce him, bub. Yeah. (laughs) And that's sort of her running joke throughout the movie. And I think that she is... A really important role model for Paikia of how to exist in this patriarchal society and still be able to stand up for yourself and stand up to men. Mm. And I think that Paikia's ability to stand up to her grandfather is directly related to watching her grandmother do the same thing her whole life.
1: I also love that we're spending so much time talking about the grandparents because technically the lead of this film is a little girl, but when you talk about tradition, you talk about the people that are upholding these traditions and really take them seriously and that tends to be older generations.
0: I also think that Paikia is sort of defined by her need for her grandfather's approval and love. I think
1: it's tied to wanting to feel a true and genuine connection to her culture and her tribe. I think that's what this whole episode is about, that your love of a tradition and your love of your family are really one in the same. Yeah, I think she loves her culture. She wants to be changed because she cares about it that much. But it's two sides of the same coin. Maybe it's really just to get her grandfather's approval. Right. And that's legit too.
0: Paikia's passion for her culture is sort of unique in these three movies. Mm. We're going to see three women responding to their culture in very different ways. And I think of the three, Paikia is the one that actually wants that relationship with her traditions. Yeah. And it's the fact that she is not allowed that relationship that she is fighting for. Yeah.
1: And I really respect that. I love that we're including a movie about a girl who does not want to reject her culture. She cares about her culture. She cares about her tradition. She just wants there to be room for her to be a part of it. Right. At one point, she says to her grandmother, it's not his fault I'm a girl. As if defending her grandfather for excluding her because of her gender.
0: Because she respects her traditions. Yeah. And in a way, part of her inner conflict in the film is dealing with the idea of breaking tradition in order to embrace tradition. Yeah,
1: that's really interesting.
0: We need to talk about the scene when she gives her speech. Okay. It's really sad. It's so heartbreaking. It's so sad. Keisha Castle-Hughes in this moment. Can you imagine? Can you just like... (laughs) I can't believe she is a 12-year-old child and she is able to conquer that moment in such a believable and heartbreaking way. And she is just overcome with sadness in this scene it's just like it breaks my heart and she actually when this movie came out she became the youngest woman ever nominated for best actress at the oscars Mm. and her record was beat only a few years later by quvengini wallace for *Beasts of the southern wild
1: which we will definitely talk about on this podcast because one of my favorite movies of all time Oh my gosh.
0: But man, she deserves it. She's amazing. What a performance. I
1: used to teach middle school drama and there was one performance of a group of middle schoolers and one kid had one line in the play and it came up to his line and he started crying on stage so hard. And it reminded me exactly of this moment when a group of people who you are so intent on impressing are watching you break down and not be able to handle it. And I started crying in the audience just watching him. And then his classmate, also on stage, started applauding him. And the entire audience broke out into applause. And he said his line, and the play moved on. And I so badly wished that in Whale Rider, someone could have reached out to her in that moment and not just let her suffer alone on stage.
0: I think it's such a symbol of her leadership and her bravery. You know, I feel like the conversations around bravery often don't acknowledge the fear that has to be there in order for that bravery to exist, to overcome that fear. Yeah. And I feel like that's what that moment is. She is pushing through the pain of that moment in order to be a leader. Absolutely. She has a message to give, and it's a good one. She's talking about sharing knowledge. She's talking about everyone having access to knowledge so that everyone can be leaders Mm. and I think it was really important for her in that moment to get that message across even though her intended audience her grandfather wasn't present and that was really hurting her I think this
1: film also says something really really big about something that again like we were talking about with the craft like isn't gendered it's just human sometimes really ambitious people or really impressive people who accomplish a lot of things their target audience is so small Yeah, You know, she gave this great speech There were dozens of people in the audience And the only person she cared about Wasn't there The only person she was trying to impress I feel like you hear about successful people all the time Who have that narrative Who did everything they did changed the world Because they were trying to impress one person Hmm. I think that sort of epitomizes Tradition in a nutshell (laughs) You're really just trying to like Make your parents proud
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we've also been Waiting for a really good father-daughter narrative. We got it. And we got it. We finally got it,
1: Sam. Yeah. It's a grandfather, but it's basically a father. He raised her. I'm also super interested in the dad, though. I think the dad is fantastic that he went through Mm -hmm. this profound tragedy and trauma and really didn't know how to stay on this land anymore and in this community and sort of goes off. I think that was a great suggestion that that could happen, but to Paikia and to other members of the community, it is definitely not an option. It doesn't even cross their minds. You know, when the father tries to take Paikia away to Germany, she like kind of gets in the car and then immediately is like, what am I doing? Yeah, this is my home. This is who I am.
0: I think it's also really important that you know this story is about a Maori tribe in New Zealand and every character in the film is Maori all of the actors are Maori there are zero white people in this movie except for the girlfriend who shows up in the very in 3 last seconds line. yeah and yeah. doesn't have any lines this is a story about this Maori tribe and what's sad is that that doesn't really mean that the presence of white people is not felt in the movie because Koro's fear of his traditions disappearing and his tribe dying out is directly related to New Zealand colonialism.
1: Yeah I think that's an incredible point and I think that's fucking awful. We obviously need to talk about the ending but I'm gonna hold off because I don't want to cry but I want to talk about the music first. Oh great. The sound editing in this film is so beautiful. There's sort of two sound aesthetics in this movie that go back and forth. One is this very ethereal, very beautiful, slow music. There's either music or there's whale singing. Mm. And I was trying to keep note while I was watching it this last time around that the only time we hear that is when the shot is set at the ocean or it's shots in relation to the whales. It's always about going back to that original myth of the whale rider. That's when that kind of sound aesthetic comes in. Otherwise, the film is fairly quiet. There's not a lot of underscore in other moments. There's not a lot of use of songs in a soundtrack. Usually what makes up the sound background is the clanking of utensils, the wind blowing, the scraping of digging. It's the echoing sound of the world that they're in. It gives great texture to the actual land that they're on. And then the huge, beautiful payoff is the only time you really hear like loud, active music is in the final scene. When they're going off in the waka, and the tribe is singing, that's really the only time you hear like active music. That final scene of them going out to sea and having this big ceremonial ritual, it sort of feels like a musical sequence, right? It feels like a giant like big musical number of everyone on the beach, Dancing or chanting or watching, all of the men pushing the waka out to the ocean, Paikia chanting. It's like a beautiful musical number. And in a film that was so quiet and so ethereal up until then, to have this big sort of eruption of joy and ritual and tradition was just so stunning.
0: That celebration of tradition is so important. And now it includes Paikia. Yeah. And so we feel like we can celebrate with her as well. We haven't talked about the whales yet. The way they filmed the whales swimming is incredible, and then the whales on the beach. Yeah. I had absolutely no idea how they filmed that while I was watching it. I had to research afterwards. I realized that they used full-scale models.
1: Oh, I just like to pretend that there were really whales on the side of the beach. Right,
0: and, like, animal trainers were there. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's okay, (laughs) (laughs) Bluey,
1: we'll get you back in the water soon we just need to film this shot first
0: (laughs) no those were models wow they were so realistic and incredible the way that they somehow rigged them to breathe to breathe it was unbelievable
1: i started tearing up and crying when they all arrived on the beach and i didn't stop for the rest of the movie yeah so the last like 25 minutes of the movie (gasps) i am crying Again, we've been talking about metaphor a lot in this movie. The metaphor that the whale recognized that something was wrong with this tribe and that the whale dying was a parallel to the tribe dying and the grandfather recognizing that was so overwhelming. And when he says, you've done enough, when she tries to touch the whale and he says, you've done enough, as if this is her fault, when really the whales being beached was a test of him, not a test of her. He needed to embrace this inevitable truth of his tribe which was that Paikia is the whale rider, and she needed to prove that. God, when she climbs on top that goddamn whale, I'm just like a wreck.
0: She's known from the very beginning of the story that she's meant to lead this tribe. Yeah. That was never the issue for her. She always knew that she had the ability to climb on that whale.
1: Yeah. It's like what you said earlier, that her bravery is not is never really called into question. Right. She knows what she's good at. She knows what she's ready for.
0: What do you think about her accepting death in that moment
1: and going under yeah. with the whale i think that was her coming to terms with the fact that her grandfather might not ever change and if she needed to leave the tribe in a way that she felt was respectful to the traditions we've been talking about she was going to go out with the whales, with the origin story of their tribe. And then I think realizes that she can keep fighting for her grandfather.
0: The grandparents' reaction to that moment is so interesting because the grandmother is in mourning. Yeah. She thinks that her granddaughter is dead. Mm -hmm. And the way that she looks at Koro is like, this is your fault. Yeah. She's done this for you. And then the look on his face is guilt and regret, but also awe. He is filled with a respect for her in that moment that he's never felt before. Maybe for anyone. Yeah. um, He
1: learns about the whale's tooth and sees her riding a whale at the same time. That's a lot of information to take in about someone that you have spent the entire movie underestimating.
0: And in a way, I feel like I wonder if too much importance in the film is put on getting the approval of men Mm. in order to shine as a woman?
1: I don't know. He had the power. He was the chief of the tribe. You know, she directly needed his approval for her to assume power. Yeah. You know, it wasn't her fixated on his approval. She literally needed it. Again, I'm just so happy we're talking about this movie because, you know, it's this sort of cliched feminist movie, but when you really watch it, there's just so much there. It's so complex and it's really beautiful. I just love this movie so much.
0: It earns that reputation and then some.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So let's get into Wajda. Watch is so good. <laughs> it's so funny. I feel like we say that about every single movie we talk about because we got some good movies. I know. Wajda came out in 2012. It was written and directed by Haifa al-Mansur, and it stars Wad Mohammed as Wajda, Reem Abdullah as her mother, and Ad as Miss Hussa. This is a very special movie. It was the first feature film shot entirely in Saudi Arabia, and it's also the first and so far only film directed by a female Saudi Arabian director. Wow, amazing. The film goes into the kind of environment that women exist in in Saudi Arabia. And if you can imagine that that is the same environment that the director of the film existed in making this movie, Mm. it meant that because she wanted full authenticity of the setting, like the other two movies we're discussing, it was filmed in the streets of Riyadh, which is the capital of Saudi Arabia. And so it was often necessary for her to direct the movie from the back of a van while her male crew filmed the actual scenes and she would watch the scenes on a monitor and communicate with her crew through walkie-talkies.
1: She had to be the authority on the film set in secret basically. Right. That's a really interesting way that you just phrased that that it's important to watch this movie that depicts a certain kind of environment and set of laws towards women that's the same environment that the director had to make this movie in. So it really hits home the kind of limitations and challenges that both the women characters in the movie have as well as the filmmaker having those challenges Making the movie, it becomes sort of meta.
0: It really feels like this movie is an act of rebellion. Yeah. And I feel like I can feel her anger in almost every line of this movie. Mm. It's interesting. We'll get into that later. Yeah,
1: I feel like there were a lot of specific moments in this film that I had to sort of pause, either literally pause the movie or just sort of pause myself and reflect on this huge moment that would drop and then sort of casually go away again. I was really shocked actually the first time I watched this movie. This movie was a real sort of punch in the gut to me. And I wonder if that's being a Western audience or it's just a really incredible movie that nails these hypocrisies and limitations. But the second time I watched it, because I had gotten some of those shocking moments sort of out of the way and already knew they were coming, I could really just focus on the humanity and the individual moments between the characters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this film is so great, because it allows for both. It, on one hand, can be this really loud political statement, and on the other hand, it's just a really great story about really well-written characters.
0: Yeah. In order to understand the movie, I think we need to contextualize it. So, what's unique about this movie compared to the other two is that the traditions themselves may be old, but as they are applied to the lives of these characters is rather new. So the oppressive laws in this movie that make it necessary for them to wear the full abaya in public and make it illegal for women to drive, those laws have only been in place since the 1980s in Saudi Arabia. Mm. And so it's a country taking old traditions and making them law, which means that I think the film doesn't necessarily comment on the traditions themselves. It comments on the oppressive nature of not giving people People a choice whether or not they're going to interact with those traditions.
1: Absolutely. I'm really glad that we're including a film that the traditions are politics and the traditions are rules. Because the inner conflicts in Whale Rider and Pieces of April, which we'll get to, are all about whether or not you choose to uphold these traditions. In Wajda, they really don't have a choice because it's law.
0: However, the main conflict of the story is the bicycle. Mm. Whether or not Wajda is going to be able to own her own bicycle and ride it.
1: You made a really good point when we were prepping for this episode that there's really no indication that a girl riding a bicycle is illegal. Right. It's the tradition, it's the culture that discourages her from riding it.
0: And I feel as though the fact that the laws exist in other contexts makes it harder for people to accept things that there aren't laws for, like the little girl riding a bicycle. The laws that do exist Mm -hmm. cultivate a conservative culture that still discourages that kind of behavior. Yeah. The fact that the bicycle exists and is for sale, like, it's clearly meant to be a girl's bicycle. And when she goes to the store, the toy store owner has nothing to say about her being a girl. He's clearly (laughs) intending on selling this bicycle to a girl. So I think it's really about her own family and her mother's fear of the community's reaction Mm. to her riding a bicycle, rather than that being a set law.
1: That's really interesting. And again, goes back to our larger theme that upholding tradition and respecting tradition is really negotiating the traditions of your individual family.
0: Right. I love how the bicycle is filmed. This movie is almost like a romance <laughs> between Wajda and the bicycle.
1: It's first entrance while well, it looks like it's flying it's across gorgeous. the neighborhood. And the
0: music that comes in is so romantic and heart pounding. It's like she's seen the love of her life. <laughs> it's love at first sight. That's really what that moment was to me. And Amansur has said that she was inspired by neoclassical movies like The Bicycle Thieves <laughs> which really centers a story around a bicycle as the most important thing in the world mm. and it represents so much in this movie it represents transportation because Wajda in theory won't be able to learn how to drive mm-hmm. it represents autonomy it represents equality with the boys it represents fun. fun fun and childhood and youth and freedom and joy it's a goal that she can work towards it's also rebellion there's so much that is just encapsulated in the bicycle it also represents competition with abdullah her friend which
1: i love this like friendly banter competition she knows that she's better and faster than him but she just can't prove it because she doesn't have a bike and once she gets a bike she can prove that she's a better rider than he is
0: and at one point he even says i'll give you my bike oh that was such a great moment. And she says, no, then how will we race?
1: Right, her objective is not to have a bike. It's to use it in the context of a race.
0: It's to prove that she is as good as him. Yeah. It's It's like the epitome of the feminist argument. <laughs> we don't want to be better than men. We just want equal opportunity. We just want an equal playing field to prove that we can do as good or better. So let's talk about Wajda for a second. Sure. She's sassy. She's so great. She's a sassy, fierce
1: girl, and it was really interesting witnessing this world through her eyes because she is very manipulative. She lies to people. It's never malicious or harmful, but she has to claim power and money, specifically money. She needs to get agency in this world however she can and she does it by not always being very nice. And I think that's really interesting.
0: She's also so cool. (laughs) The first shot of the movie is of her sneakers. Yeah. And right off the bat we know that she is different from the other girls. She wants to be different. Yeah. And as we become more acquainted with her we become more familiar with her little idiosyncrasies her radio with her like macgyvered antenna (laughs) her cassette tapes her vest her bracelets that she sells to classmates uh uh-huh her denim backpack with the patches she is just like so cool and she's like a little ceo She's got this whole business plan before the conflict with the bicycle even starts. She has this idea of making and saving money.
1: Yeah, her notebook is like the equivalent of balancing a checkbook. And she's doing that just on her own. Just no one has prompted her. She's (laughs) just really good with money and business.
0: She is so full of capability and potential. Yeah.
1: Again, this goes back to our sports episode, this theme that's been brought up a couple of times that if you were born in a different context, who knows what you might have been. I feel like Wajda would be a CEO of, like, a major Fortune 500 company if she was given the opportunity to do that. Yeah. But the local conflict that she's given is simply the agency to ride a bicycle. I think that's very painful and interesting. Now, also related to her having a very executive personality, what are your thoughts on the fact that she sells out her two classmates? to get what she wants, to further her relationship with her teacher who might help her win the competition. That moment sort of rubbed me the wrong way.
0: I think she's a complicated character and that's what we're looking for. She's imperfect.
1: No, I don't think she shouldn't have done it. It just frustrated me because those girls did absolutely nothing wrong.
0: I think at that point she had her objective in mind. She knew that she had to get on this teacher's good side in order to win the competition, in order to win the money to buy her bicycle. Yeah. And she did what she needed to do and I think that doesn't make her a good person in that moment but it makes her human it makes her an interesting person
1: absolutely let's just get into why she has to get into this teacher's good graces the Quran competition which the second half of the film sort of becomes the main driving force of the movie
0: right it's such an ironic concept
1: it's so satisfyingly ironic that she does not give a shit about the Quran and is learning it to win a bicycle
0: Yeah, and again, you know, the filmmaker is not commenting on the Quran itself. Right. She's commenting on this school's relationship to the Quran and Wajda's relationship to the Quran. The irony of the competition is using a money incentive to get these children to care about the Quran Uh and then being surprised when the child who wins doesn't have, you know, religious ambitions for her prize money. Mm -hmm. To tell you the truth, it reminded me a lot of the ceremony around my bat mitzvah. I feel like at the exact same age as Wajda, I was heavily in Hebrew school, (laughs) being taught the traditions of my culture, Mm. not understanding them one bit. (laughs) Not caring. Except that I had the promise of this huge party, with lots of presents. And so Wajda's performance at the Quran competition was really close to home for me because I I remember just being complimented and praised by my family, saying what a good job I did and thinking like, I'm just a performer. Like, singing in front of people comes naturally to me. Mm. That felt completely separate from my relationship to the tradition. Mm.
1: And to God, and to whatever religious sanctity was supposed to be tapped into at a baritzvah. Right.
0: Right. To step back to Whale Rider for a second, I understand why my Jewish community feels so much pressure to teach these traditions to their children, and for those traditions to be carried on. It's because of threat of extinction. Mm. One of, I think, the greatest movies and musicals of all time is Fiddler on the Roof, (laughs) which, again, I really relate to because... I'm Jewish, and it's a very Jewish story. And the main thesis of that musical is that traditions are made to be broken, and that different generations are naturally going to have different relationships with their tradition. And you can't force a child to have a relationship with a tradition because it just won't work. You have to let them come to that tradition in their own way. Or at all. Right. I
1: just find it really beautiful and ironic and just really satisfying that the Quran competition was to encourage these girls to develop a passion for something in life. And they wanted it to be Islam. And so when we see Wajja studying with her video game at home or she's walking to school studying the Quran and there's
0: so much energy that she's putting into this. I mean in terms of it being used as a learning tool, it was very successful. She learned a lot.
1: They actually got what they wanted. She has developed this deep passion. It's just not for the thing they wanted it to be. It's for her bike. And I still think that's a major moment and rite of passage in Wajda's life. For her to focus all of her energy into this thing she's so passionate about. I find that so admirable and it's just such good dramatic storytelling that she ends up getting punished for that initially because her teacher realizes that she's not passionate for the thing that they wanted her to be passionate about. So they don't give her the money because they say you should have been passionate about this competition for these reasons. Not for the reasons you brought in. This is why the ending is so good. We haven't even talked about the mom yet. The mom is such a great character. She has this full arc. She realizes that a lot of the traditions that she has been fighting for Wajda to understand and uphold have not actually been serving her either because it's been a nightmare getting to work with the driver her husband is about to marry somebody else these traditions that she's been fighting for have actually hurt her and she sees that they're in the process of hurting her daughter and so she sort of has this revelation about bending the rules of these traditions to make her daughter happy she has a line at the end of the movie she said I just want to make you happy and she realizes that that's a lot of what family traditions should be is bringing joy and satisfaction and respect to your family and these traditions weren't doing that for her and her daughter and that's why she spends the money on the bike. Oh that was such a beautiful moment when you see that the mom bought her the bike. The mom who's been so like hostile about the bike the whole movie. And she realizes that the most important reason for tradition is to make your family happy.
0: She and Wajda are set up with parallel journeys from the beginning of the film while Wajda is saving her money to buy a bicycle her mother is planning on buying this expensive red dress to impress her husband. And throughout the movie, she is very obsessed with the way she looks. In most scenes we see her in, she is doing her hair, like she says, exactly the way her husband likes it.
1: Yeah, she says she wants short hair, but her husband likes it long.
0: Right. She feels a loyalty to tradition because so far, it's working in her favor. She won this husband who all the girls at school were jealous of. Mm. And she has this beautiful family. And only in the events of the film do we see her actually experience heartbreak because of tradition. Mm, That's really interesting. That because she's having trouble having another baby, she needs to bear him a son, according to tradition. He starts to look for a new wife. And so at the end of the film, when he's getting married again, that is the thing that makes her finally see that her daughter doesn't deserve the same heartbreak. Mm, yeah. And so she's able to break tradition at the end of the film.
1: I'm just so in love with the parallel between this mother-daughter relationship and the mother-daughter relationship in Pieces of April. Wajda's mother sees that Wajda is a nutball, very eccentric, likes rock and roll music, wears Converse, sells things at school. Like, she knows she has a wacko for a daughter. And she seems actually pretty cool with it. Like, I agree with everything you just said about her adhering to tradition until it comes back to bite her, but I think even before that, she seems pretty cool with the fact that she has this very offbeat eccentric daughter. Mm -hmm. And she seems to respect Wajda for that. That read as a very bittersweet parallel to what we'll talk about in Pieces of April, where your daughter's differences terrify you, and you don't really know how to embrace them. I just thought the relationship in Wajda between her and her mother was really lovely, and I feel like we haven't seen too many lovely mother-daughter relationships. You know, they fight, and the mother's very resistant and scared of the way Wajda is different, but she's so in love with her anyway. I I think that's really nice.
0: Yeah. Um, the
1: last moment of the two of them on the roof is so gorgeous. It's so gorgeous. The mother's smoking a cigarette, they're watching the party of the father looking for a new wife and the mother shows her the bike and they just have this incredible moment of friendship and understanding and kinship i loved that scene
0: the final shot of them hugging with the fireworks going off behind them which in that moment have such a double meaning they're the celebrations that they don't have access to yeah But it's also a moment of celebration for Wajda because her mother has accepted her and has given her this incredible gift and sacrifice. Yeah There's so much going on In that moment In that shot It's so good
1: I want to quickly talk about Who I think Steals all the scenes That he's in Which is little Abdullah Who I think is such a great character He's so cute And has his own little arc Of just falling madly in love With Wajda By the end of the movie (laughs) He starts I really think Buying into the culture Of these traditions That Wajda Doesn't deserve a bike She's kind of funny to him He doesn't really get her And throughout the course Of the movie They develop such a real And deep friendship That by the end And he's totally thrown. He does not need his bike anymore. He's willing to give it to her. He wants to do anything he can to make her happy. He comes to respect her as an equal. And I think that's so exciting to see young boys realize, oh, everything I've been taught about how I should look at women is actually bullshit because this girl, Wajda, is the coolest person I've ever met and all I want to do is hang out with her.
0: I don't even think that it's a rebellious thought for him. I think it's just his natural childish impulse mm. to see his friend as an equal. Yeah, And I think that's the purpose of those scenes. It's to show that it's not entirely natural for men to see women as lesser. Mm. It's tradition that teaches men to feel that way. So
1: you think the point of his character is his age. It's the fact that he hasn't been taught yet how to diminish Wajda.
0: Right. That's awesome.
1: You have to be carefully taught. He's too young to have really had that ingrained in him. He respects her because he's too young to know better. (laughs) Right. That's awesome. To end this movie on just the happiest note... The most wholesome, loveliest mm. moment. She comes up to Abdullah on her bike. He just has this big old smile. They get on their bikes. She wins and she like rides off into infinity. Oh, it's so fucking satisfying. And the music swells. It's so great. And You can see off into the sky. It's such a great final shot.
0: It's hopeful. Yeah. And I think that's really important for the tone of the movie. But for us to leave these characters with... Hope. Yeah. Ah, watched it. Yeah. We're ending our conversation with Pieces of April, mm. which is a Thanksgiving movie. And we just had Thanksgiving. Right. So it felt appropriate to do this movie and have this conversation right now around Thanksgiving.
1: I have loved this movie for so long and I love it even more now. And I'm just so glad that now I have a podcast to say that to the world.
0: <laughs> I only saw it recently for the podcast. Amazing, And it made me cry.
1: Oh yeah. Lots of tears. Lots of laughter. Lots of tears. This movie has everything for everyone.
0: Yeah. It's like a dance, the way that this movie is structured. It has, like, a mastery of manipulating my emotions. (laughs) Making
1: you laugh, then making you cry. Then making you laugh again. Then making you cry again. I thought you were going to say it has a mastery of structure.
0: Oh, it does. We'll get to that. Pieces of April came out in 2003. It was written and directed by Peter Hedges, and it stars Katie Holmes as April and Patricia Clarkson as Joy. Peter Hedges also wrote What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and he wrote and directed Dan in Real Life, which is another phenomenal movie. This is a very sensitive and masterful filmmaker.
1: And he also gave us Lucas Hedges, so... Bless him.
0: Aww. (laughs) True. They look very similar. Oh, really? I didn't even realize that they were related, and then I looked up a picture of Peter Hedges, and I was like, oh, you're Lucas Hedges' father. That's so
1: funny. (laughs) (laughs) I am so obsessed with the idea that I love Gilbert Grape, I think for the same reasons I love Pieces of April, which is that he does not bother with sentimentality. He's not interested in overtly declaring the love that's within this family. He'd much rather focus on the conflict and the bickering and the annoyance that the family has. And you realize that the reason they're all fighting so much and they have such stake in each other and why they frustrate each other so much is because of the love. He explores love in a family in a very backwards way. He sort of enters from the back door of a family's love by portraying how much they don't get along. And I find that so interesting.
0: And so thematic with Thanksgiving. Yeah, so real. (laughs) This movie is structured so
1: brilliantly. I feel like the description of the plot of this movie, they sort of ride the wave of that description for 90 minutes. A girl is preparing Thanksgiving dinner for her estranged family who you see driving towards the dinner. That's the entire movie. That's all it is. And within that seemingly very simple frame, you have access to so much complexity and nuance and all these supporting characters. It's such a rich tapestry of story and character, even though the premise of the film is so beautifully simple.
0: I feel like some of the best stories are stories that take place in the course of one day. Mm -hmm. We had the same thing with Tangerine. Mm. Like, Like the idea of telling a complete story and having complete character arcs during a single day. It's so difficult. Mm. And when it is successful, it can pack the biggest punch.
1: I think movies like Tangerine and Pieces of April are successful because when you condense the setting and the time window down so much, it means that their objectives have to be incredibly precise and focused. And they have to be really clear. They can't be, well, I'm looking for meaning or Well, I'm looking to find myself. Like, no, they have a tangible goal and they either get it or they don't. And when you are dealing with a vessel that's that tangible, you can then focus on all of the sort of ethereal themes around it.
0: Right. So April and her family have parallel journeys in this story. We start first thing in the morning when they're waking up, and they each have all day to achieve their objective. April has all day to cook the turkey for her family and to get her apartment ready for them to arrive. The family has all day to drive from the suburbs To New York. They both wake up... God, the opening shots of them wake up are so funny. Way too early... (laughs) For a tradition no one is looking forward to. (laughs) They're each forcing themselves to go through the motions in order to engage with this tradition. Yeah. In order to bring their family together in a way that they also are not looking forward to because of some kind of loyalty to the tradition based on nothing except tradition.
1: The whole objective of this movie is, on one hand, it's tangibly to have a pleasant and civil Thanksgiving, but intangibly, more emotionally, it's to use Thanksgiving as an Excuse to engage with your family that you've become estranged with. The tradition is a vessel for something that they desperately want to have happen emotionally. Yes. And in that sense, tradition is pretty awesome. Causes a lot of mayhem along the way. There's a lot of little conflict and bickering throughout the movie. But that ending is just so satisfying. We'll talk about that when we get to
0: it. And the setting really becomes important because of the structure. It's super important to see the fall foliage, which is so important to the tone of this movie. Mm -hmm. Talk about the importance of shooting this movie in the actual setting.
1: It's so intimate because you know that this really was like a tiny tenement building on the Lower East Side. There was probably no space for a crew. (laughs) So it's really tight. It's really packed in there. And that's exactly what Thanksgiving is, right? It's claustrophobic, both in a beautiful sentimental way and sometimes in an uncomfortable way. <laughs> there is nothing funnier that I can remember in the longest time than watching Katie Holmes in her little pigtails running up and down the stairs, holding this turkey, screaming <laughs> for someone to help her. It's just the funniest thing in the world.
0: Also, this is a real New York apartment.
1: Yes, yes. People, if you don't live in New York, that's how small they really are. Yeah, it
0: ain't the friend's apartment.
1: (laughs) Related to what you said about going through the motions of a tradition, because of the formality of having that tradition, not because you really want to, I feel like there were little anecdotal moments throughout the film that commented on that and satirized that. For instance, the first is that they eat ahead of time, before the meal, sort Uh of as a pointed like, fuck you to April that... They don't know if the food is going to be good or edible or even ready. I feel like that's sort of a tradition that happens sometimes in families, which is very sad. The next thing is after they kill the animal on the side of the road, They go through the motions of burying it, but they really don't care. Like, none of them actually care about this. About this thing that they've hit. And that felt very real. That felt like a ceremonial ritual that people do, but that doesn't really mean anything. They had no connection to this animal. They probably just thought it was an inconvenience that took them off the road.
0: I thought the biggest ceremony in the movie was the turkey. The turkey is like the centerpiece of this movie. Yeah. And the first few shots of the turkey are very ceremonial in tone. The way that they wash it, the way that they hold it, Mm -hmm. the way that they stuff it and sew it up, it's all in worship of the turkey. (laughs) And then you find out about halfway through the movie, April's a vegetarian. Yeah. She's probably not even gonna eat the turkey. Yeah. She's just making it for the tradition.
1: Yeah. I'm so obsessed with the fact that this movie is laden with images of April trying to cook a meal that she has no idea how to cook. Yeah. The only person actually engaged with this tradition of cooking Thanksgiving dinner doesn't know how to do it. And I find that hysterical that April is probably the only one in the family who couldn't cook a Thanksgiving dinner. Beth could probably do it. Tim could probably do it. The parents obviously do it. April's the only one who doesn't know how to cook this food. And she's the one person engaging in the cooking process. And that's why I think it's so beautiful when she realizes that she has a family in her building of New Yorkers, of strangers, of Americans who all contribute their peace to her Thanksgiving dinner because of kindness and because of being neighborly. I think it's nice that she wouldn't have been able to uphold this tradition if she didn't have other people around who were kind to her.
0: Right. And it's so funny when she meets Yvette and Eugene, they have their own food traditions.
1: Yeah. It's not
0: the menu that
1: April's used to.
0: Right. They have very strong opinions about the way she makes her stuffing, the <laughs> way she makes her cranberry sauce. I love it. And they take on a kind of parental role with her. Yeah.
1: They teach her how to cook, which is what the tradition should be in your own family. Like April should know how to cook all this food because her mother should have taught her. Right. I love the moment when she knocks on Yvette's door and Yvette starts laughing at her about her white privilege that she presumes to just ask neighbors for help in this way. And it's, I think, a pretty obvious parallel to the original Thanksgiving story of white people just sort of inviting themselves into other people's lives and saying, make me dinner. And then two minutes later, Yvette is crying on the couch about the humanity of April's actual story. I think there's a lot of points being made in that two minute scene. And all the points are very correct and interesting.
0: There's a lot of attention in this movie given to The theme of race.
1: Yeah. And the relationship between race and American tradition, particularly of Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah. I feel like in many instances in the movie, people make assumptions of each other based on race Mm. and then have those assumptions challenged and subverted. Absolutely. So Yvette laughing at April about her white privilege, and then in the next moment crying with her (laughs) about her personal story is only the first example of that. Then April meets the Lee family, who she assumes and is told that they can't help her because they don't speak English. And they end up being the most helpful to her. The
1: most generous of spirit, the most gracious.
0: And Bobby is probably the most explicit example. We meet Bobby in direct parallel to April's father in those first few scenes, getting Mm. ready in the morning.
1: Uh, Sort of appeasing the wily woman. (laughs) Right.
0: He's such a good boyfriend. April's father is such a good husband. They're both... Nurturing figures in their relationships. So that parallel is developed right off the bat. In the following scene, her father makes a comment saying, April said her new boyfriend reminds her of me. Mm. And I feel like that is supposed to be meant as a joke.
1: Yeah, it's like a race related joke. That's supposed to have a payoff later.
0: Which I didn't laugh at at all because it felt so obvious to me that they were similar and that he would have reminded her of her father.
1: It's just so bittersweet and painful that that parallel is obvious to us and it's clearly obvious to April because what she sees in Bobby is that nurturing, wonderful partner qualities you're talking about. But to a family like theirs, the reason that's a joke is because how could you possibly compare a man like the father to a young black man? That's supposed to be the joke.
0: And the way the movie treats Bobby is really interesting because Bobby's storyline is purposefully and ambiguous. All we know is that he has a task somewhere in the city. He's meeting up with a friend at a specified location. This guy Tyrone is looking for him. I think that the movie is trying to test its audience's impression of Bobby. I think it's sort of framed to imply that he's getting into trouble. I
1: don't think it Im- it is framed to imply that. I think the ambiguity gives room for the audience to assume whatever they want.
0: Right. And I'm not sure if the movie is exploiting his race for the joke. For a punchline later that he's not involved in something dangerous, he's just trying to buy a suit to impress his girlfriend's family. Or if the movie is purposefully using that ambiguity in order to make the audience aware of their own racism in relation to April's family's reaction to Bobby when they first meet him.
1: Right, that leaves a pretty... Bad taste in my mouth. The only interesting follow-up to that, though, is that miscommunication happens in the film itself when he arrives at the car, all beaten up, and the family is completely freaked out. That moment was so devastating that this family has put up with so many memories of april they have fought against their instinct to stay away from april they have given her the benefit of the doubt this whole car ride and what finally drove them over the edge was seeing bobby Mm -hmm. i feel like that was the biggest slap in the face about The tradition of racism in America, that was the biggest tradition that April was breaking in their eyes, was having a black boyfriend. It just really packs a punch at the end of the movie and is really earned.
0: April tells the story of Thanksgiving to the Lee family. Yeah so ironic. I think that scene is really important because the holiday of Thanksgiving is
1: reprehensible.
0: It comes from a racist colonial
1: history. You know the origins of Thanksgiving are in genocide and horrible atrocities that settlers did when they came to America and all of that has been glossed over and sort of romanticized in the name of this American family Thanksgiving tradition. And I think April acknowledging that just sort of Sets a different tone for the film. And I think that's really respectful and nice.
0: And I think that's what Thanksgiving has come to represent for a lot of people. Like, even if we acknowledge the brutal history of it, we're still comforted by the simple traditions of the holiday, the ideas of generosity, the ideas of bringing your family together and eating a delicious meal. Opening your house to new people. Right. So it's an interesting dichotomy within this one tradition.
1: And I think this movie tackles that very complicated subject in a really tactful way. Right. I think because at
0: the end of the day, this
1: movie isn't about the history and traditions of Thanksgiving itself. It's what we had said earlier, using tradition as this vehicle for emotional exploration of this individual family. Like the film is way more about April and her relationship with her mother than it is about the cultural history of Thanksgiving.
0: I think in that scene, April is making a connection between her journey being on her own in a new land in New York City with the journey of the first American settlers. And because of that, because the movie makes that connection, I wonder if it's an irresponsible connection
1: because mm. the film at the end sort of romanticizes this idea that all these different cultures in this one place can come together to share a meal and when we were children that being the narrative of Thanksgiving that we were taught and now we realize that that's not at all what the narrative of Thanksgiving really was.
0: Right. I feel like it's a hopeful American narrative but not necessarily a truthful one.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a truthful one either. I think if the film was just about that one theme then it would be far more problematic but I do think that the event and ceremony of the Thanksgiving tradition is more of a vessel in this movie for April's relationship with her mother.
0: Right. Let's talk about her mom. Mm. <laughs> Makes me wanna cry. Yeah.
1: I'm so thrilled that this movie is on the podcast because it doesn't really have that many overt themes of gender. feminism. It's just an incredible story about family and prominently features women. Whereas like Whale Rider and Wajda are defined by the lead character's gender and how their gender interacts with that tradition. In Pieces of April their gender is there but it's not what drives the conflict. Mm -hmm. The conflict is this family conflict. It's the fact that they can't see eye to eye as family members.
0: Joy is kind of a monster to her daughter.
1: I was given the impression by the film that they were both monsters to each other but because because parents curate the household parents curate the dynamic between themselves and their children it is far more joy's fault that they don't have a good relationship but i imagine they were both pretty horrible to each other
0: i mean joy describes her childhood in detail she says the petulance the shoplifting the drugs the drugs the ingratitude the fire in the kitchen <laughs> Those are all legit. I guess I just always think it's the parents' fault. I agree.
1: I think accepting very extreme situations where a kid has a problem that's sort of beyond the parents' care, which absolutely happens. I feel like in general family conflicts, like the ones in Pieces of April, it is the parents that curated this conflict, and it's up to the parents to fix it.
0: April says that her mother was 21 years old when she had her, Mm. and she describes herself as the first pancake. Yeah. Which was really funny when she said it, because that's a phrase that you and I use (laughs) when we make the podcast, often when we record... We'll record the first few minutes and then we'll say, first pancake. And then we'll start again. And then we'll start again. And the reason for that is because those first few minutes, we weren't quite ready. So
1: devastating to think that a child would be a first pancake, though. You don't get to have a first pancake when you've brought a human being into the world.
0: And that's what she's implying that her her mother wasn't quite ready for her. Yeah. And I think that is the root cause of their relationship trouble. Mm. And probably the root cause of April's behavior as a child. And then her mother's response to that behavior. Yeah, And at one point, Wayne, played by Sean Hayes. So
1: weird. Super weird. What's the deal with that character?
0: <laughs> yeah. He tells April, you're a bad girl. A very, very bad girl. Yeah. And she says, no, I'm not. So I think that's the fight that April has been fighting her entire life. Yeah. It's the assumption that she's a bad girl from birth. Yeah, because she was the first pancake Mm. and she's been fighting to prove that she's not a bad girl all her life and it's culminated in this Thanksgiving meal that may be her last chance to prove to her mother that she's good. Yeah, And so the stakes are so high.
1: Yeah. I hate to be tactless and even call it a dramatic device but in terms of the story structure of this movie, Joy's diagnosis of breast cancer is sort of this dramatic device that drives the movie forward. That the stakes of this Thanksgiving are a lot higher because they've sort of established a couple of times that this is probably going to be their last Thanksgiving that they could all have as a family with joy there. And the way that that comes in and out of the story is again one of those examples where you're laughing one minute, crying the next. Joy leaping out of the car on the side of a highway is at first very funny because it's ridiculous. And then the next minute you're like weeping along with them with Oliver Platt and Patricia Clark's who are so incredible in this movie and one of the moments I started to cry she says how do you know it's going to be good and Oliver Platt says because I told her it had to be I mean you can feel the weight of that yeah and it's because they have this dark cloud over them that this could be it we've been talking a lot about traditions breaking or modifying or ending the stakes here are that this tradition is going to end because of sickness because of death so we have to earn this tradition one last time oh I'm getting a emotional just thinking about it and again peter hedge is leaning into the humor of this movie the first time you hear this idea that this could be the last thanksgiving the father is saying it to tim in the house he goes this could be the last thanksgiving and tim interrupts him and says dad your breath (laughs) and just like completely subverts the drama of the moment (laughs) and and grounds it back to reality which is like this is a dysfunctional family who say really mean things to each Mm -hmm. other But the exposition still came across, didn't it? That this is going to be the last Thanksgiving. And then it was followed up with humor. It's just genius.
0: And I honestly think that that is also the reason why Joy is able to reevaluate her relationship with her daughter in the end.
1: Yeah, pull herself up by her bootstraps and really claim responsibility for their relationship not going great. It's because, well, I'm going to die soon, so I have to fight for this now.
0: In a way that she's probably never fought for it before.
1: Never felt compelled to probably. Right. She was probably fine being estranged with her daughter because she just assumed everything was April's fault and she doesn't have time to sort of let that relationship go anymore. Oh, it's so good. It's so sad. And to back up the point that we made earlier that Joy is probably the one who curated a lot of the tension between herself and April. When Beth is singing in the car, it is so funny and so cringy. And then Joy traumatizes her. And it's really not funny anymore. Like, it's really funny for a second. And then you realize that's the kind of tone and judgment and shame that Joy probably gave April her whole life. Like, you just see the look of devastation on Beth's face that she is humiliated in front of her family. Mm -hmm. It's really powerful. April is also younger than I remembered her being. She's 21 in the movie. I think when I was a kid watching this movie, I thought April was like in her mid-20s and she was like 10 years older than her siblings. She's three years older than Beth. Right. They clearly were raised together. Like this was one unit family. So to now spend the entire film where one leg of this family is in one world and the rest of the family is in a car together, that really hit home in a deeper way.
0: And for some reason, Beth... Three years later, they were ready for and were able to raise her in the way that they wanted to raise a child. But we see that the result of that is that Beth is a monster. Beth is so much. She's the worst. I mean, I don't know if she's the worst. She's a (laughs) lot. She is such an interesting character because in exterior, she's the perfect daughter. Yeah. She's exactly what Joy wanted in a daughter. Mm -hmm. And she says this at one point. And yet she has such ill intentions. (laughs) Meanwhile, April is the opposite. She's exactly what Joy doesn't want in a daughter and yet has very good intentions.
1: Totally. I, I agree with all of that. I just don't know if I agree with the idea that Beth doesn't have good intentions. For today, I think a lot of this is due to the fact that Alison Pill is just such an incredible actor. There's such nuance in her performance in a character that, yeah, otherwise could have been very two dimensional. I feel like you see throughout the movie, whenever Beth talks about April, that all she wants is a relationship with April. And at 18, she is already so jaded and so cynical that she knows that will never happen. And so she hates April for that. She's developed this like darkness and Rage towards her sister because she'll never have the relationship with April that she wants. In the last moment, when they're at the dinner table together, and April leans over and hugs her, Beth has a moment where she starts tearing up. She almost starts crying because she is so relieved and overwhelmed that she just Mm -hmm. had a positive moment with her sister. I think Alison Pill is a genius in this movie.
0: That's really interesting. I read it as her feeling competition with her sister for her mother's love.
1: I mean, maybe. I just think she won that competition years ago and she's still not happy. I think she doesn't care about her mother's love. She already has that. She wants April's love. Hmm. And she wants April to accept her love. I think it's really traumatic when siblings don't get along. Sure. I just felt so like broken at the end of the movie when they go to the diner and Beth has this big fucking smile on her face. And she's clearly in pain too. I mean, everyone is in pain in that little booth. No one's happy to be there, even if they're smiling through it. And Joy goes to the bathroom and sees the other mother and daughter. She sees how young the daughter is and how young the mother is and sees that time is moving and you don't get to make mistakes like that for very much longer. I just love that she hops on the motorcycle. I mean, again, this tragedy and comedy seesaw back and forth she hops on the back of this motorcycle which is so silly and the movie ending in photographs I mean that's what Thanksgiving has been for so long is you take photos and the movie ending like that is so intimate gorgeous
0: I think that even before her parents arrive at the end her Thanksgiving dinner with the Lees and her boyfriend and Yvette and Yvette and Eugene, that to me is beautiful enough yeah. without her family arriving. yeah. I think for a lot of people, Thanksgiving is a time of a lot of emotional stress yeah. and the requirement of being with family that may be traumatic for people. And many people form new traditions with their found family mm. that can be so much more nurturing and important than the family that you were born into. And so I think that, you know, sometimes the family you make is really the one that matters.
1: I think I read somewhere that the moment where... April is crying on the bed after her family has left. The original line in the screenplay was, I knew this would happen. And then in the film, she says, Bobby, what are we gonna do with all this food? And I feel like that's such a beautiful indication of the arc they wanted April to have, which is not to be thinking about herself anymore, not to be internalizing this moment, but instead realizing, what I can give to people, how much love I have for other people. So she invites all of her neighbors over for Thanksgiving, and that's the way that she copes with the fact that her family abandoned her. Mm -hmm. And I think that turnaround, turning that trauma into sharing this food, sharing this experience with her new family is so... Lovely.
0: <laughs> and I think the movie does end on a really hopeful note. Oh, yeah. With her family returning, her racist family sharing a meal with April's neighbors. Yeah. Maybe it's a little too hopeful, but honestly, that's the kind of hope that I need on Thanksgiving. Mm.
1: That's why we maintain these traditions that even if we don't believe in the origins of them or the narrative of them, those moments with your family giving each other the benefit of the doubt are so important.
0: And hope for the future. Yeah. Hope that our racist relatives can overcome their racism. Yeah.
1: And And we can all get along.
0: And that our country can come together. Yeah.
1: This movie packs in a lot everything we've just been talking about in the ending is like overwhelming i was just sitting on my couch crying i'm glad you said what you said about thanksgiving because yeah thanksgiving can be really triggering for people yeah i really respect this corner of culture that we have traditions as long as we're not afraid to amend them
0: Mm, amen happy thanksgiving sam happy thanksgiving (laughs)
1: For next episode, we're not going to do movies based on a time of year. We're just going to do really kooky movies.
0: Yeah, I feel like we've had a series of really heavy episodes, and I'm just ready to have some fun.
1: Let's watch some kooky movies.
0: Our next episode is Liar Liar.
1: Pants on Fire. We're going to talk about movies that feature lying, conniving
0: women. I love it. Our first movie is, by far, my favorite movie of all time, the 2016 Korean erotic thriller The Handmaiden, in which a woman goes to work as a handmaiden to an heiress in a secret plot to defraud her. I feel like you've been waiting since the beginning of the
1: podcast to talk about The Handmaiden, and the moment has finally come. It's here.
0: I'm so excited. <laughs> I, like, can't wait for all of you to watch this movie. It will blow your minds and your socks off your feet. And maybe your underwear. Wow.
1: Just being honest.
0: (laughs) Okay. The next movie is the 2006 English drama, Notes on a Scandal, in which a veteran high school teacher befriends the new art teacher at her school and becomes the keeper of a dangerous secret. Mm. And the third movie is the now classic 2004 comedy, Mean Girls. (laughs) You've seen it. You don't need my synopsis, but here it is. (laughs) A new girl navigates the jungle of high school cliques.
1: So ready. So ready to talk about liars.
0: See you next episode. (laughs) Bye. Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. And email us your voicemails at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. You can find descriptions and links to all of our movies on feministpopcorn.com. And don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. Sam, the movie's starting. Pass the popcorn. (laughs) Tradition!
1: Tradition!
0: (laughs) Tradition. Tradition!